Thank you so much, Adele. Oh, what a great testimony. Our hearts are filled with joy hearing of your profession of faith and your clear testimony, giving all glory to our Lord. That is why our Lord is so beautiful. That is why He's so powerful and glorious. It's the love that He's shown to you through His patience, forbearance, and saving you through the gospel. Man, we could just do our closing prayer right now and just go home and that would be a good Lord's Day. I mean, that was, that was awesome. Thank you. Praise God. Let's, let's continue to pursue the Lord and proclaim His truth. And good job, Kirk and Sarah. Man, way to go. Live, live the Christian life at home so that um, your family might see it and also give glory to God. That's Titus 2 right there. Praise. Thank God for you guys. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do acknowledge and we see your beauty in Scripture, and yet we can firsthand taste the beauty of Christ through your work in the world and through your uh, saving work. And uh, Adele, Lord, you're transforming her heart, giving her a heart of flesh. We firsthand taste the sweetness of Christ. We see the beauty of, of the Lord. And how all those years when she was living in rebellion against you, refusing to acknowledge your authority over our life, and living in independence, and, and oblivion of the sacrifice of the cross, Lord, you are patient, you are forbearing, Lord, you waited for her, and Lord, uh, you are working providentially all around her, through salvation of Kirk and Sarah, their lives maturing and growing in the Lord. And as they first started to pray for their family, pray for Adele, and Lord, in the perfect time, you allowed her to hear the truth, hear the gospel. And Lord, you opened her eyes to see the truth of Scripture, the gospel of John 10 and also in Romans 5. Lord, you saved her. You've given her a new heart, holy affections, holy desires and you cause our Lord uh, to be a possessor of eternal life Lord first of all we give you all glory for that we give you praise and declare that you are a merciful 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 God and we also pray for our dear sister we pray that you would grant her much grace to draw near to you that the Holy Spirit would be powerful to her and that she would grow in her salvation, that she would long for the pure milk of God's word, and that she would always walk in a manner worthy of you, and that she would pass this knowledge of the sweetness of Christ to others, and that many would uh, come to a saving knowledge of the one true God and your Son, Jesus Christ, through Adele's testimony, her life, and her ministry of the word. We thank you, God, for your work in our lives. Uh, may this uh, encourage us to continue on in the harvest field, knowing that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We now turn our attention to um, your truth, your scriptures. Help us to uh, have humble hearts, undivided, undistracted hearts. Help us to be like Mary, not Martha. Help us not to be distracted by many things that we need to do. Help us to focus on one thing that is necessary. One thing that is needful in your sight. For us to sit at your feet.
and to listen to your Son. Oh Lord, help us to do that so that we might become like your Son in every way. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, thank you, Adele. Praise God for that. Man. Well, very interesting week for me. Driving here this morning, you know, Marcus was talking to talking with Amy. I was talking to myself, talking to myself, and I was thinking, I've been in ministry for over ten years now, preaching expositionally to the scriptures, uh, studied through Matthew and First Timothy, and now two thirds way done in the Gospel of John. And being in ministry for ten years now, there's a sense where I'm somewhat confident in the role that God has given me in terms of the administration requirements, the shepherding requirements, all the leadership issues and serving issues that come up in the church. But the weekly task of studying the Bible, the weekly task to understand and comprehend with my feeble mind the glorious truths of Scripture, this humbles me, this humiliates me, this keeps me grounded. If it were not for the responsibility and the task of studying the Bible, I think I would become a proud pastor, very prideful, arrogant, self-confident pastor. But I come before you this morning, again, just humiliated ground to my heart because um, the Bible is so great, truth so profound, that I find myself utterly inadequate um, for the task of understanding it, let alone explaining it to others. Now, here comes a cheesy illustration. I'll preface it by saying, I'm a product of my generation. I didn't grow up reading Shakespeare. You know, I didn't grow up learning Latin and reading, you know, uh, classic novels of, of, you know, the world. Grew up in the pop culture of the 80s. So, when I was struggling this week, looking at the text and feeling, sensing this inadequacy, sensing this uh, utter inability, uh, the thought that entered my mind, and this is, how I, how, this is exactly how I felt and how I feel, was a scene from the movie um, Rocky, the original Rocky, Rocky One, the, the only real Rocky movie. Um, remember on the evening before the fight, um, Rocky enters a stadium by himself late at night. No one's there. The lights are on. There are two big banners and a drawing of Apollo Creed, heavyweight champion of the world. And then on the other side is a drawn picture of Rocky Balboa. And then there's a, a, a manager, manager or one of the producers of the fight is there. And he says, what are you doing here, Rocky? And, well, and he says, um, sir... They got it wrong. They got my picture wrong. Um, the picture has white trunks with red stripes, but my trunks are red with white stripes. And the producer of the fight says, doesn't really matter, does it? Meaning, Rocky, it's not about you. You're just a guy that the champ picked up to beat up. It's really not about you. It's all about the champ. He goes home. If you remember, guys, you remember... He goes home and Adrian is laying there and he thinks she's sleeping and he says in a... <laughs> oh, it's cheesy, I know. 
you know, he says in a soft voice, I can't beat him. Right? I can't beat him. He said, what are you talking about? I can't win. He's a heavyweight champion of the world. Right? Nobody's gone 15 rounds with him, let alone beat him. I can't win. And she says, what are you going to do? I understand how he feels. He wants to run. He wants to find a hole and crawl into it. He wants to be anonymous. He wants to run away. Why? Because he can't win. But what does he say? Man, he says, I want to go the distance. I can't beat him, but no one's ever gone 15 rounds with him. If I'm standing at the end of 15 rounds, that's all I can hope for. I know it's a made-up movie. It's not real. But I'm sure in the history of boxing, some guy has felt something like that. And that's what I felt this week. As I look at John 17, I am daunted by the task of studying, understanding, and teaching it. And I know I can't do it. I really can't. I am humbled by my inadequacy and ability. So I want to run. I want to hide. I want to find a hole and crawl into it. I want to recycle Isaiah 6. Right? I, I want to skip John 17 and go to John 18. In fact, I want to skip the rest of the Gospel of John and go to 1 Corinthians and go to Philippians, the epistle of joy. Because I am just humbled before this Mount Everest chapter of the Scriptures. But my heart is, I just want to go to distance. right? I just want to be faithful. I just want to teach this text verse by verse, do my best, and if I'm standing at the end of John 17, well, praise be to God. I hope that made sense to you, in some way edified you, some way encouraged you, where you want to run, you want to hide, you want to be invisible, you want to be anonymous, uh, because the daunting task that God has set before you, at home, at work, ministry, that you would not hide, you would not run away, but you would go the distance in Christ. I can't believe I just give a whole illustration from Rocky 1. Okay. John 17, um, the high priestly prayer of Christ, the most life-transforming, soul-inspiring prayer ever offered on the earth. It is a unique look at Christ's prayer. It is really the true Lord's Prayer. Luke 11, what many people recite as the Lord's Prayer, is not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. This is the prayer that Christ audibly prayed. The only prayer of Christ recorded in length in the whole of Scripture, written down for us, that we might hear His prayer, learn from it, and benefit spiritually, benefit personally. Therefore, there are unique insights. And one insight I want to start with is that the format of his prayer, not the content so much, but the structure of his prayer. He is praying like a lawyer. There are a few lawyers here in our church. And you study John 17, and you will see Christ making an argument. Christ pleading his case. He goes before the judge of all judges. He makes a plea and he defends his plea. 
he makes an argument after argument why the father must answer his petition. It's interesting, it's unique. It's something that I never considered before. That as I pray to God and as I petition God, I ought to make a case before God why he ought to answer this prayer for the salvation of the lost, for the maturity of the church, for the health of someone in the church. I can't just pray and leave it to God. As Christ did, I must make a case, make an argument why this prayer must be granted. We, did, we looked at this in verses 1 through 5 as Christ prayed for Himself. His petition was simple. He said, Father, glorify Your Son. His petition is singular. He prays for Himself that God might glorify Jesus on the cross. What is that prayer? That the Father might honor Him, reveal Him, manifest His glory, His power, His splendor, His majesty on the cross so that the world might see that He is indeed the Son of God. He prays, Father, strengthen me through the cross, so that I, through the cross, may I manifest Your glory on the cross. He gives that singular petition, and He gives three arguments why God must answer that prayer. God answers this prayer, why? Because by strengthening me through the cross, then I can glorify You. If you don't help me to the cross, I can't glorify you. I can't reveal your holiness. I can't reveal to the world, least of all the people that you give me, how holy you are. How much you hate sin if you don't strengthen me to the cross. If you don't glorify me to the cross, I cannot manifest your justice. I uphold justice by, by punishing sin. If you don't Strengthen me, cause me to endure to the cross. I cannot reveal to the world the love that you have for your people. The price that you pay to purchase the souls of the elect. God, you must glorify me so that I might glorify you. That's his one argument. First argument. Second argument is, Father, glorify me so that this will procure salvation, eternal life to your people. Verse 2, because you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Father, do this so that the people that you have given the Son might be saved. And the third argument is, Father, glorify your Son because I finished the work that you have given me. There is no reason for you not to do this. Everything you told me to say, I said it. Every miracle you have commissioned me to perform, I performed it. Every temptation that came my way and you called me to obey you perfectly, I did it. I finished it all. There is no reason why you should not glorify me. In fact, you must because I finished the task that you have given to me. You see that? Christ makes the prayer and He argues why God must answer His prayer well, that structure is seen again in the second portion of John 17, verses 6 through 19. In this, this section, he is not praying for himself. He prays for the apostles. He prays for the eleven apostles that are gathered around him in the upper room. Verse 6 reveals that He has in a special way manifested God's name to them. Verse 8, He has given them God's word. Verse 12 is a clincher. 
Because he says, none of them is lost. None of them except the one, the son of perdition, which is Judas. So it is clear here he's praying for the eleven. It is only in verse 20 where he points to us. Future believers who will, want, who will believe in him through these apostles. But right here, the immediate reference is the apostles. Now, verses 1 through 5, follow with me. He begins with the prayer, gives the arguments. He has a chiastic structure, like an X. Prayer, arguments. Verses 6 through 19, he begins with the arguments and he concludes in prayer. He begins with why God must answer his prayers for the apostles. And then he prays for them. And then he prays for them. So we find here, in today's study, we'll continue on next week, four reasons, four arguments of Jesus why God must answer his prayer. Four reasons for Jesus' prayer for the apostles. And it's important for us to understand these truths because even though he's praying for the apostles, in application, there is no difference between the apostles and us. Therefore, his prayers directly apply to us. Therefore, our application is four reasons why we must pray for one another. This is an instruction. Uh, um, This is motivation. This is... Christ compelling us why we must pray for one another. Why we must pray for one another. In your outlines in the bulletin, we have the four reasons. Because they kept God's word. Because of who they belong to. Because of their task. Because God's glory is at stake. That is why God the Father must answer these prayers. And for us, these are the reasons why we must pray for one another. Let's go to the first one. He says, Father, answer my request, petitions for the apostles. And our prayer is, Father, answer our requests and fill in your name. As I pray for you, as you pray for one another, you pray for me. The first reason we give to God is because, is because they have kept your word. Because they have kept your word. Look at verse 6. Christ prays. I have manifested your name to the people. The word name in the Bible is often used to designate the person. For example, John 15:21, they will treat you this way because of my name. They will treat you this way. They will hate you because of my name, because of me, because of who I am because of my attributes, because of my teachings, because of my, of my life, they will mistreat you. When Christ says, Christ prays, I have manifested your name, He is saying, Father, I have revealed who you are to the apostles. I have unveiled your glory, your character, your attributes, your law, your will, your plan. In other words, Father, I revealed the knowledge of the one true God to these apostles. And they have kept it. They have kept it. The Son is the Father's exegete. The Son exegeted the Father. The Son interpreted, explained, revealed the Father. 
Apart from Him, we can never know, never know the knowledge of the true God. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, no one approaches the Father and knows Him, except through me. Matthew 11.27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Matthew 11.27, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Nobody knows God the Father except those that Christ has chosen to reveal the Father too. Jesus revealed, manifested, made known the invisible attributes of God the Father to the world and by His miracles, by His character, and by His teachings revealed the glory of God. But we know what happened. 99% of the world rejected it. 99% of the world hated Him for it. That's not God. You're a liar. You're a blasphemer. You are possessed by demons. He's a heretic. Where are the rocks? Where is the cliff? Let's end this guy's life, end, end, end this man's life right now because he is a false teacher. When Christ revealed the knowledge of the true God, the response was almost singular. Great majority. They hated him for it. They hated the God that Jesus revealed. Because they loved the God that they had fashioned in their own image. They loved the God that supported their religious authority. They, they loved the God that tolerated and, and promoted their sins. And because Jesus' revelation of God the Father confronted their false God, they rejected Jesus Christ and the revelation that He gave them. John 3.19 This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light. John 1.11 He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. John 5.42 I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I know that. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive Me. John 8, 42 through 45. I'll summarize it. He says, I know why you don't accept me. Because your father is the devil. He's talking to the religious leaders of Israel. Your father is Satan. If your father was my father, you would embrace me. You would love me. Our doctrine of God will be the same. So we'll be united. But you so hate me because you are sons of the evil one. Jesus came, revealed God. They all rejected it except for these 11. These 11 men. Other disciples as well, but these 11 men particularly. What did they do? They kept your word. They didn't spurn the revelation of God given through Christ. Look at verse 7. They know everything in Jesus is from the Father. Father, they know. Answer this prayer because these 11 men, they're the few that know that everything I have is from you. Father, answer my prayer, verse 8, because I gave your word to the world. They rejected it. These 11 men, they received your word. Not only that, 
Later on in verse 8, they have come to know in truth that I have came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They know and believe that I am from you. That I am from you. This is why Jesus pleads to God the Father to answer His prayer for them. Because they and they alone were the true stewards of the true knowledge of God. Everyone else's knowledge of God was false. It was error, except for these eleven. And their knowledge is eternal life. Remember verse 3 of John 17? What is eternal life? Knowledge of the one true God and Jesus Christ Christ, whom He has sent. So these men, their knowledge, their possessors, not just eternal life for them, but eternal life for others because they have that knowledge and they received it. They know and they kept it. And therefore, they're the only hope for humanity in that way because they're the only ones who have the true knowledge of the true God. All other gods, all other knowledge is false knowledge. All other knowledge is corrupt knowledge, which results not in eternal life, which results in destruction and separation from God in eternity in hell. There is no salvation in anyone else except for these eleven. Christ says, Father, answer my prayer, for they have kept your name. The second reason is found throughout John 17. The second reason is because who they belong to. For they are yours. In this passage, there is an underlying truth that in the world there are two distinct communities. The larger community is the world and the other smaller community And he repeats this phrase again and again. The smaller community are people whom the Father has given to the Son. Seven times in John 17, Jesus repeats this phrase and he describes this group of people in this way. Verse 2, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Second part of verse 6, yours they were and you gave them to me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. I am praying for that small subgroup of people whom you have given me. Verse 11 again, Father, keep them in your name. Who, is, who, who are they? Those you have given me. Verse 12, I have kept them in your name. Who is them again? Which you have given me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. He's talking about glory in heaven. This, this, uh, this is how Christ describes the elect a portion of people that God has set aside. And He says again and again, Father, You gave them to Me. But then He said in verse 9 and 10, For those whom You have given Me, for they are Yours. All Mine are Yours and all Yours are Mine. 
because we're one, because you're united, though you have given them to me, they are still yours. They still belong to you. They are your people. And that is why Christ, this is the argument Christ makes. Father, answer my prayers for the people because they're yours. They belong to you. They are your possessions. They are God's property. God's property. It points to the Lord's love for the Father. The Lord prays for the disciples because they belong to the Father. And that is why we must pray for one another. Because we no longer belong to this world, but we belong to the Father. Point number three. The third reason why God must answer Jesus' prayer. Third reason why we must pray for one another. Because the Lord has sent them and sent us into the world. This prayer reveals that God has, Christ has given um, a task to these eleven and to all of us. Right? That though believers are to be separate from the world, we are commissioned by Jesus Christ to live not only in the world, but furthermore to go in the world. There is a weird tension here. There's an interesting tension. Um, there are two communities, believers and non-believers. We are spiritually distinct. There is no spiritual commonality between these two groups. We are not, but at the same time, we are not socially segregated. Though spiritually we are set apart, socially God commands us to be engaged together. We are to be not just live in the world, Christ calls us to go into the world. This is why Jesus prays specifically. We'll look at this next week. But that is why He prays for us. That we might be kept in the Father's name. Verses 11 through 13. That as the apostles go into the world to proclaim the gospel, they will not be shaken in their faith. But that the Father Himself will hold them and keep them in His name. He prays, verse 11, that they might be united, that they will be one, because the last thing you want is division in enemy territory. The last thing you want is to be in a forward-leaning area and to have division, mutiny, insurrection. So God, Father, keep them united, because I've sent them into the world. Verse 15, Father, keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, that they may be sanctified because only a holy people will impact this fallen world with the gospel. Here we find a direct correlation with holiness and evangelism. Now all these topics are, 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 are subjects for next week's study, but today Christ's argument is for these prayers. Why God must answer these prayers? Because Christ has sent them and sent us into the world. Therefore, that must be our mindset. That is the Christian's mindset. As we look at the corruption of the world, you know, I, I read this week, there's a little town called Gretna, right near New Orleans. On the second day after Hurricane Katrina hit, and there was a bridge that connects this suburb town, majority, you know, they're 
you know, upper middle class community right next to New Orleans. There was a bridge that connects them. And throngs of people were running away from the chaos and, and the destruction of New Orleans with the hurricane. And they were making their way to Gretna. And you know what that town did? They put the sheriffs out. It was the mayor and the chief of police decision to close that bridge. They turned them back. And the whole town agreed and agrees to this day with the decision of the mayor and the chief of police. All these people, they're saying criminals, right? All these people who are looting, all the poor, we have to take care of them. Don't stop them at the bridge. Forbid them to cross. And they fired weapons into the air to turn them back. And so we have these men, women and children running away from a flood and they were uh, crossing the bridge to be saved and they were turned away. Well, many Christians live life like that. They want to live in a safe community, live in a nice protected house with nice friends and be undirtied by the world. So they withdraw from the world in the name of sanctification, in the name of, of holiness and righteousness, in the name of that's God's will. But we find here clearly that is not God's will. The Christian's mindset to the world is not to withdraw. On the other hand, it is not to conform to the world. The Christian mindset is not to become like the world. And, and do the things they do. Because if we do that, then we lose our power. We lose our message. We lose our distinctiveness. We have no message. We have no power to, to challenge them with the gospel of truth. Here we find the alternative. Here we find Christ's commission. We are not to withdraw from the world. We are not to conform to the world. We are to go into the world. As holy men and women go into the world proclaiming the knowledge of the one true God so that people might know this truth and have eternal life. Look at verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus makes His mission, His incarnation, the pattern of the church's mission. We are sent into the world in the same way Christ was sent into the earth. Our Lord did not attempt to perform His mission from a distance. He came up close and personal. He didn't stay far away and say, you know, I don't want to get dirtied by humanity. No. He jumped in with both feet. He's a man of sorrows, being tempted in every way because of the fallen world. He did not send others to do His work. He didn't send angels, didn't send prophets or other guys to do His work. No, He came Himself. It was a costly coming. Consider this. He laid aside all the conveniences of heaven. He set aside heaven's splendor. His glory, His majesty, He entered earth in its fallen condition. You know, we talk about the suffering entailed in going to Czech Republic. Talk about going from the United States to Kazakhstan. You know, how difficult it is, how uncomfortable it is. The United States to Russia, how tough it is. Well, how about going from heaven to earth? Right. That is a huge drop 
in terms of comfort. But that is how Christ came. He didn't say, oh no, it's too hot on earth. Right? Oh, it's too uncomfortable. Right? Oh, I have to become like man. I have to work. I have to labor. I have to be tired. I have to be tempted. I have to go with all the comforts. And I have to lay aside my glory. And I have to be humiliated and die on the cross. No, thank you. I'm going to stay in heaven. No, He came. Knowing the cost, He went into the world. In like manner, He sends us. Therefore, in this way, missions is normative. In this way, for every Christian, this mission is given to every single Christian. Every believer in this way is a missionary. Because every believer has been called by Jesus Christ to go into the world. Not withdraw, not conform, but to go into the world to preach, to convey, to explain, to declare the knowledge of the one true God which leads to eternal life and which is eternal life. Revealed by Jesus Christ alone. The world left to themselves cannot have eternal life. They cannot know this knowledge that is eternal life. Because they don't know Jesus Christ. They can only have eternal life through us going into the world, heralding this message. I believe the lack of this mindset is the reason for the weakness, shallowness, and how about this, the confusion that so many Christians have about the gray areas of the Christian faith. So many believers are caught up about, can I drink? Can I smoke? Can I dance? What movies can I see? What movies can I see? Can't I see? Can I eat this? Can I eat that? Can I not eat this? What jobs can I take? What jobs I can't take? How should I spend money? Where should I spend money? How much money should I spend? How do I date? How do I court? How many children should I have? How should I lead my children, parent my children? All these pitfalls confuse the church because we've forgotten why we're here. We're not here to soak up the Christian life and enjoy life in this Christian country club. We're not here for ourselves. Christ left didn't take us with Him. He left us here so that we would go into the world to save the lost. Pastor John Stott said, if we are sent into the world, we cannot withdraw from it. If we are sent into the world, we cannot conform to it either. It is involvement in mission, witness, and service which will keep the church both in the world and not of the world. I love the way he puts it, both worldly and holy. Christians, we are to be worldly. Why? Because we're in the world. But at the same time, we're set apart. We are holy. The Christian calling is that, is that one and the same time to worldliness and to holiness. And above all, to mission in the name of Christ as His servants and witnesses. This is why Christ prayed for them. This is why we must continually pray for one another because we're on a mission. We're here for a reason. Difficult purpose, difficult mission. This is why God must answer Christ's prayer and answer our prayer. And final one, final argument is because God's glory is at stake. Because God's glory is at stake. Again, from last week's sermon, we discovered 
that what is in the heart of Jesus Christ, what is his singular passion, what is motivating everything he says and does in his life, it is the singular passion that concerns him. It is the glory of God. He's concerned for God's glory. And so when he was on the earth, it was as it were, God's glory was up to him. So he was in direct control over glorifying the Father. So through his speech, through his humility, his gentleness, his kindness, his forbearance, through his compassion, through his instructions, he glorified the Father and he finished it and brought much glory to the Father. But now that he has gone, he has given that stewardship, that privilege, that responsibility to us. And so that is why he prays for us. That is why he argues, God answered this prayer. Because as it were now, God's glory is at stake and it is up to us. Verse 10, All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Jesus' glory, God's glory is tied to us. In Romans 2.24, Paul said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because of the hypocrisy of the Jews. Because of their immorality, their duplicity, because of their evil and sinfulness, people malign God's name. People step on and laugh at and hate God's name because of the conduct of the chosen people that applies to the church now. If we conduct ourselves in sinful ways, then God's glory is diminished. But if we conduct ourselves in righteous ways, in holy ways. We conduct ourselves in keeping with the arguments that Christ has given for His prayers to be answered. Then God's name is exalted, honored, and God is glorified. In Second Thessalonians 1.12, Paul's prayer for the church was, We pray this, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Philippians 1, 9-11, we pray that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. John 15, 8, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Ephesians 1, 11-14, we were saved to the praise of His glory. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of His glory. Father, sanctify them. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your name because your glory is at stake. Four arguments why God must answer Christ's prayer. And four reasons why we must pray for one another. Why? You know, not just what you ought to pray, but when you pray for me, when you pray for our elder Bob, these are the reasons why you must pray for us. When you pray for your flock shepherds, when you pray for your small group leaders, your ministry leaders, when you pray for one another, you're thinking, man, why am I praying for this guy? Man, why am I investing 20, 30 minutes praying for this sister? These are the reasons why, chief among them, that God's glory is at stake. Well, three final thoughts. Uh, to close our time, number one, how can we be answers to prayer? Now, God answers our prayers through our lives. First of all, we can answer, be, we can, 
be the answers to someone's prayer by having a right view of God. Again, going back to last week's point again, last week's application, let me apply it again for you and plead with you to know God and to continue to pursue the knowledge of God. Never have the sense that you've graduated from the basics of knowing God. I know God already. Now what else is there? What deep theology, what profound truth, what wisdom and insight is there beyond just the basics of knowing God? No, brother, no, sister, you've got it all wrong. Knowing God is not basic from which you graduate from to something more nobler, more profound. It is the first and last theology. It is theology proper. It is a theology we are to immerse our lives with. Jesus gave us, through the Scriptures, the revelation of the one true God, which is and leads to eternal life. So as believers, we must be good stewards of this revelation. must be good stewards. We have the oracles of God, the mystery of God. What are the mysteries of God? It's Himself. So we must be careful to know God and continue to pursue God. So again, read the Scriptures. I mean, read the Scriptures. Be men and women of the Word. Not just intellectual knowing of the Word, but a personal knowing of the Word because you want to know the author of it. Meditate on the Scriptures. Memorize the Scriptures. Know the words of Christ. That will be my first plea to all of you. Secondly, tying to our tying to the mission that Christ has given to all of us, that we are to have a mindset of a missionary. Let me just uh, rattle off several uh, marks that I've thought of of a non-missionary mindset. Marks of someone who's forgotten that they're on a mission. You know, they've landed on D-Day. They've got a rifle in their hands. You know, they're at the beach and they have amnesia. They, they forgot why these guys are shooting at him, why the guys are yelling at him, and he's, he's just tired. He wants to take a nap. He's forgotten. So these are marks of a man or a woman who's forgotten this missionary mindset. And, and trust me, I'm preaching to my own heart here. You ask me, Pastor James, where did you get these marks from? Looking at my own life, right? looking at my own heart, I'm preaching to myself. If you think, oh, is he talking about me? Well, I might be, but <laughs> I might be. But if it fits, then you've got to wear that. But where did it come from? It came from my own life, in all honesty. Well, some marks of a non-missionary mindset. You are constitutionally discontent. You're just unhappy. You're just discontent, constitutionally the repeated, repeated song of your life. Like, woe is me. You are often bored and you don't know what to do with your time. You're just bored with life. You waste money on dumb things, on frivolous, temporal things. You waste time on and fill in the blank. You waste time. You know, God has called you to go into the world, giving you this commission to herald the truth of God and you're wasting money, you're wasting time, you're wasting energy on. Your life is filled with soap opera like drama. People ought to make Life Channel 
TLC, you know, movie of the week about your life because you're always absorbed about your soap opera things, petty things in your life. You're always huffing and puffing about some petty thing in your life. Forgotten your mission. You are money-centered or wife-centered or child-centered or entertainment-centered. Pick one or all. Or you are family-centered. You are religion-centered, meaning you just want a nice Christian family in a safe neighborhood with fun Christian friends and you don't want to be bothered with the world. You don't want to be bothered with caring for the lost and ministering to the church. How about this one? And this is not you know, directly to me, but you know, I can identify with this temptation. You either have a Netflix account or the workers at Blockbuster know you by name. Right? How's that one? Right? You live for the weekend or you live for your vacation. That's what you just grind through life waiting for the weekend, waiting for vacation. You are more concerned about your diet, more concerned about clothes, more concerned about missions, more concerned about shopping than missions, than the lost. Some uh, negative marks. You are not intensely studying Genesis for your flock Bible studies. You are not memorizing the scriptures. You are not daily in prayer. You're not, you know, you're, you're getting ready for the Olympics and you're not, like, getting ready. You're not in training. You're not preparing yourself. That means you forgot you're going to the Olympics. That means you forgot you've called to a, to a mission. You are not daily in prayer. Last one, you are not dreaming and planning your life for ministry, evangelism, or overseas missions. See, if we're called to missions, you know, guys that were called to fight in the Second World War, they were training, and their dream was being sent off, deployed overseas to fight against Germany or against the Pacific Front. They dreamt about that. They prepared for that. They organized their life for that. You know, Lieutenant Colonel Dick Winters, you know, Band of Brothers, he refused to get married. He had a girl that he was writing to. He said, don't talk to me about marriage. Don't talk to me about love because I'm in a war. I don't know if I'm going to make it. This is what I'm called to. I have no, I have no room in my heart for marriage. Right. That, was his, that was his life call. Are you dreaming for ministry? Are you planning your life for evangelism and missions? These are all marks of, that you've forgotten your, your missions in life. Finally, how can we acquire and maintain a missionary mindset? How can we acquire this mindset and maintain it for the long haul. There's a few things. Get involved in ministry. Get involved in ministry. I, you know, I'm, a, I'm lazy. I'm a lazy guy. If I have a vacuum in my life, I'll default to laziness. I'll default to doing what I want to do. Bob and I and the shepherds talk about this. Ministry is a good accountability for us. As men, because we're so lazy. And ministry keeps us going. I get involved in ministry. Immerse yourself in serving the Lord. And keep saying yes to God. Keep saying yes to God. Whatever opportunity is presented before you, say yes to God. Just say yes. Right? Yeah, but you're talking with a neighbor, and the opportunity there to share the gospel, just say yes and share the gospel. You have an opportunity to do good works for your neighbor, opportunity to do good work for someone in the church, just say yes. No matter how tired you are, what, what reasons you have not to do it, just say yes and do that good work. 
whatever large or small is presented before you, just keep saying yes to God because that is our mission in life. At the same time, keep saying no to yourself. Keep saying no when you have these selfish, self-centered desires, wishes, dreams come up in your heart. Our hearts are idol-making machines, daily manufacturing idols. Just keep saying no, James. No, James. James, no. Stop it. Just keep saying no to yourself. Hang out with other missionaries. Figuratively speaking, find those men and women in the church who understand that they're they're a mission in this world and they're living according to that mission and hang out with them. They'll raise your game. They'll raise your level of play. Don't hang out with those who have forgotten their mission in life because they'll influence you to forget your mission as well. Don't hang out with loafers. Don't hide behind your friends. Don't hide behind your husband. Don't hide behind your wife, children, or job. Don't use these as excuses for not going into the world because they are just excuses. Don't allow fear or anxiety to rule your heart, cause you to go away from God's mission given to you. Trust in God. Don't fear failing. Failing is okay. Man, failing's all right. Just fear not trying. Fear not saying yes to God. Two more. Remember who you are representing. Remember who you belong to. That you are God's possessions. That you are under orders. And then finally, daily consider that God's glory is at stake by your life. God's name stands or falls, is, is, is raised or lowered by your life. Consider that every day. May these things help you to acquire and maintain a missionary mindset. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for praying for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for praying for us. We thank you for making such a solid case, giving such solid arguments why the Father must answer your prayers for us. And we also thank you for giving us reasons why we must be in prayer for one another. Oh God, may we, like Joshua, enter into the battlefield knowing that Moses is praying, he's got our back, that Lord, you have our back, you're praying for us. Maybe without fear, without concern, go into this world, into this fallen, darkened, sinful world, so that we might give them the knowledge of the one true God and the Son Jesus Christ whom He has sent, so that they might be possessors of eternal life. May uh, Adele's testimony inspire us all the more to go into the world. In Jesus' name, Amen.